1: and welcome to the nook, welcome to Tales to Terrify, welcome to our little neighborhood in the District of Wonders, welcome to summer, to August, to heat, to humidity, welcome to the end of the world. Oh, don't worry about that. It's all in your head, and, of course, it's only for fun. Settle down. Grab a drink. Grab a bite. Don't take Mahler's catnip treats. Ink-black cats don't like competition from hunter-gatherers like us. So, when settled, we'll begin. Tonight, we have a story that was cast once before on our sister show, The Starship Sofa. It was a long, long time ago, and it's by an author very close to all of you, Lawrence Santoro by name. It's set in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey at well, well, we'll get into that in a bit. First, the usual business. We need narrators. If you want to have a crack at that, send us an audition audio file. Read something appropriate to Tales to Terrify. Clean it up. Take out the mistakes, the heavy breathing, the sneezes and snarfs. Make it about five minutes and send it to... You ready? I'll wait. Mm-hmm. Okay. Pens poised? Send it to Tales to Terrify at gmail dot com Well that was simple, right? Put narrator audition on the subject line of the email. Also, if you're a writer and want to send us ten terrifying minutes from your most recent novel, story, whatever, record it, as above, clean it, as mentioned, and send it to us yep at the same place. Tales to Terrify at gmail.com. Put ten terrifying minutes in the subject line. And by the way, that might also serve as a narrator audition, so don't be surprised if you hear from us about that. For both auditions and ten terrifying minutes, let us know a little bit about you. A short bio would be nice, yes? Yes. And writers, send us your stories to be read and cast here in the nook dark and frightening stories of from, oh, say, a thousand to eight thousand words in length. Please put them in the usual submission format and send them to guess where? Yeah, that's right. Let's see. Oh, look for Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, coming this October 31st. It's a great Thanksgiving Day gift, yes? for Christmas, too. Also, stop by our iTunes podcast page. Rate us, lovingly, please. Stop by the website. Make a contribution to keep us in bandwidth and cat treats. And do not forget the other neighborhoods in the District of Wonders, the Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. No, Mahler, no. That's pulp, not Pulps, as in early 20th century popular fiction. Hugo Gernsback, Doc Savage, The Shadow, you know. Adventure, swords, guns, you know. Anyway, on to our evening. It is summer. It's vacation time. It's blockbuster, highly anticipated, big-budget, special-effects-laden movie time. And here, back from vacation, is our wandering abattoir guide, Mr. Mike Allen, to take you on a tour of his homeland and... Well, we'll let Mike and his fellow abattoirista tell you. That is the redoubtable Shalen Hurlbert, by the way. And by the further way, Mike tells me that since he's acquired both the print and electronic rights to the first three Clockwork Phoenix anthologies, he has now decided to edit and publish a fourth book in that series. To fund that. He's launched a Kickstarter campaign to raise the money. Now, if you don't know what Kickstarter is, just search for it. Put in Kickstarter. He has raised more than the needed $5,000, but he could always use more. Uh, this project, by the way, is being supported by the likes of Neil Gaiman, Sherry Priest, Ellen Kushner, Delia Sherman, Catherine Valenti, and many, 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 many others. So, go to Kickstarter. Put in Clockwork Phoenix 4, and you will know all that you are like to know. Now, I shall step out of the way, and here is.
2: Hello, Tales to Terrify listeners, and welcome to yet another installment of Tour of the Abattoir. Today, my friend Shalyn Hurlbert is going to be joining me once again, and we are going to talk for quite a long time about Prometheus, the new science fiction slash horror film from director Ridley Scott, that returns to the universe of his iconic Alien series. And as we had quite a lot to say, I am not going to spend a lot of time talking to you now, other than to mention that I have a Kickstarter going on to relaunch my Clockwork Phoenix anthology project. Larry Santoro has talked to you a little bit about this earlier in the program. Much to my surprise, today we are already fully funded, but I hope you'll still check the project out as we have more goals we are trying to reach. Go to kickstarter.com and look up Clockwork Phoenix 4, and you'll see all about it. And that's all I'm going to say for now. Here is me again, and Shallon. Hello, Tales to Terrify listeners. Welcome once again to the quote-live, unquote, portion of this column. I'm here with my buddy Shallon Hurlburt. Say hi. Hello. And today we are going to talk about Prometheus, the new Ridley Scott film that may or may not be a prequel to Alien, depending on what you read. This is the first time that Shallon and I have watched a movie that we plan to review separately, so he has no idea what I thought, I have no idea what he thought, and this may be a very interesting discussion indeed. While I find this hard to believe, it is, I suppose, possible that some of the listeners out there might not be that familiar with what Prometheus is about. Shallon, since you've done a great job in the past with
3: uh, our little... Capital summaries, do you mind if I pass that task to you once again? Not at all. All right, so Prometheus is about a group of scientists led by two uh, anthropologists who have discovered a series of messages written on cave walls, tablets, throughout uh, most of Earth's ancient civilizations, and the messages seem to point to a coordinate in space, so they... Get together with uh, Wayland Utani Corporation, which are the big bads behind trying to, to capture the aliens from the Alien movie series, and they end up following these uh, this map to uh, an unnamed planet where they hope to discover the people who left the messages for humanity. Right,
2: and and of course,
3: it does not quite go as they hope it would have gone. Of course not. <laughs> um, they uh they do discover the people who originated the message, and it turns out that at some point they uh, they had visited Earth in the past, seeded the planet with their genetic material which resulted directly in humans Yes, apparently we are alien I mean, descendants right and um, they then it's at another point decided that they were going to come back and wipe us out, but never got around to it. You know, they
2: they managed to, uh, well, it, it may be too much of a spoiler to say that exactly what happened. So what I'll say is their their plan for what they wanted to do to destroy humanity did not work out very well for
4: them.
3: Right. <laughs> a little bit of backfire going yes. on there. Um, once again, directed by Ridley Scott, who, who directed the very first Alien movie in 1977-78. Well, Around that time period. Right. Um, and... In space, no one can hear you scream. Right. And was really one of the first game-changing horror movies when it came to uh, suspense, uh, slow burn feel to the film, and the uh, the level of detail and gore in the special effects that really brought a realistic sense to the film. Um, there's a lot of crazy anecdotes out there about alien... Um, people who had heart attacks during the chestburster scene. There was a, a theater in Texas which was kind of infamous for cutting that whole sequence out of the film so that people wouldn't run out of the theater when that scene came up. Fascinating to think about that now. Yeah, with with all the special effects that we're used to now, it wouldn't have that same effect, I think, on today's audiences. And In fact, one of the the teenagers that I work with, in my capacity as a teen librarian, um, had just seen Alien, and I asked her about it, and she was fairly nonplussed by the whole thing. It was sort of semi-scary, but didn't really push her button. So it, it says a lot about what we've endured in film that a 16-year-old girl can be unafraid and and bored by Alien.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's that's funny how that goes. Well, I I feel my own history with the Alien series. I did not see Alien in the theater. Of course, I was a very sensitive kid, and my my parents did not dare take me to horror movies because I would have nightmares about. Right, horror. I was about three years old. And many, the many, closest many thing I got to science afterwards. fiction horror was Star Wars, and you know right. that's. But now, you know, Alien was interesting because, of course, Alien came right after Star Wars and took the new level of special effects that Star Wars had demonstrated and applied it to a very, what was really a very traditional horror tale. Uh, and introduced a new iconic monster in the Xenomorph. It was designed by, I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, H.R. Geiger. Geiger? Yes. Of course, now that creature, horrible as it was to audiences audience then, is very familiar to us. I think my first experience with the Alien series was actually Aliens, the James Cameron follow-up, which is a very intense movie, or at least it certainly seemed to me at that age. I'm not sure if I saw Alien before or after Aliens, but I saw it on television. So the worst parts were somewhat toned down. I didn't see the full... Movie until later. I've also seen David Fincher's Alien Three, which, though it has its moments, is kind of a disappointment compared to those first
3: two. Um, and the fourth movie, which was a Luc Besson movie, right? Guy Love who, Luc Besson. Was not
2: particularly it, impressed by what I saw of it, Alien Four. You
3: no, know, I, I have a sort of a, a unique way of looking at films. I I try to separate myself from what's come before and look at a movie as. Uh, as its own piece of art, if you can call Alien 4 a piece of art. (laughs) Um, And uh, my experience with the Alien films was at 13, I watched the first Alien. And uh, that's where I started off, and it scared the holy bejesus out of me. I uh, had nightmares, but I was so drawn in by the concepts and, and how there were so many, like, physical... Uh, aspects of the alien that are reflected or they reflected from earth insects, you know, acid, blood, the extendable mandible, the right. carapace, uh, short lifespan kind of thing. Lay-
2: laying eggs
3: inside hosts, right. or and, whatever
2: it is that they put in there.
3: And that made it all the more scary for me. As, as a little side note, I, I wanted to, to put this in here somewhere. And, um, Dan O'Bannon is the guy who wrote the initial concept right. and most of the script for Alien. And if you don't know who Dan O'Bannon is, you should really see Dark Star, which is... I haven't seen that. I would, it's it's love a to hilarious see it. movie. Um, very dry, and if you're not into the dry humor, it, it'll come off as boring. But but there's a lot in there that, that's worth seeing. But that's a whole nother discussion. right
2: discussion. Right. Well, all of that has to filter into... Uh, Prometheus, which I understand, you know, has
3: some of Dan O'Bannon's ideas in it. Right. And actually, a lot of the initial design elements for Alien that weren't used in Alien, uh, Ridley Scott brought back to flesh out the Alien mythos. For instance, the there are all these this concept art for alien that you can find out there and one of the images i especially liked was this huge bulbous pyramid with a human face or a skull depending on which image you see uh jutting out from the top of it sort of like right. a uh, cake topper kind of thing right, right. and initially an in alien instead of finding the ship they were supposed to find this pyramid and go inside and have all the experiences but it turned out that the the uh, creation of, of that as a set piece would have been overwhelmingly expensive, so they went with the more simple fiberglass construction of the spaceship. Right. And those are... The pyramids are The in pyramids them. are in the Prometheus. That's what they explore. It was really neat for me, a longtime fan of the series, to see that and recognize it and get a little excited about it. Where Prometheus lies in the series... It's a little bit outside of it. It's not a direct prequel. It could have acted as one if they wanted to take it in that direction. But I think as it stands, it worked very well without being definitively part of the series and, and especially as a, as a prequel, because the prequels are often fraught with all sorts of baggage and the and need to live up to a certain you know standard that that people expect from the original. It's
2: interesting to me that there's this sort of assertion that it's not really a prequel, because I think if you go to it without knowing all of the details of the original Alien movie, for example, not knowing that the planet that this takes place on supposedly is not the same planet where they find the ship. Right. Visually, in terms of the sequence of events that you see unfold... It looks exactly like a prequel. You see all the same images reappear more or less. You see the ship, you see the you you see the slain pilot that uh, appears
3: in the original Alien, and you in a way, the in the original Alien, the pilot was in the uh, pilot's chair, right? In, in and um, in this, they they have the same. Outright, the, the the
2: corpse doesn't end up in the same place. I I, right. would, I would concede that, but to me, it seems like it's so close to being a prequel that it's sort of strange that they're
3: that they're insisting it's not. Uh, I I think when you look at a prequel as as supposedly what a prequel is, which is a direct lead into the the original. Yeah, it's not a prequel in that sense. If, however, as a movie that's set in a time period before the original, in the same universe. Yes, it's a prequel.
2: What I what I the point I guess I wanted to make is for me, there were some some of the appeal of the movie to me, I haven't gotten yet to what didn't appeal to me, but some of the appeal of the movie to me was just the fun of watching the images, the iconic images that I remember reappear and how they get employed. Uh, for me that was actually very similar to the experience I had watching the so called Remake, which is actually a prequel of The Thing that had the same title. Yeah. The Thing. In that the new version of The Thing does a very, whatever, whatever its flaws are, it does a very good job of setting up things that you saw in the John Carpenter film and, and is, is a delight in that way. And Prometheus has some of that same appeal.
3: Right. Some of the stuff in Prometheus that was particularly reminiscent of the the first alien film or of course the the design of the ship right. which is a, directly the same design that they use in alien and the same kind of like internal body horror where people are infected with something that uh, that ultimately causes their demise and gives rise to some other horrible right creature it, of instead of it being something that bursts out of you the Two characters become infected with a kind of goo that alters their DNA, and they become mutated humans with right. incredible strength and viciousness. The the first one that you see sacrifices himself, so you don't see the full ex, like end result. Right. But then shortly thereafter, the other guy who got infected shows up.
2: Right, right, that's right. This is how I would sum up my actual opinion of Prometheus. Okay. Through a lot of it I was kind of groaning because to me the actual plot Prometheus presented depended on all of the characters making the stupidest possible decision (laughs) at any given
3: time. (laughs) However... And if they are making a stupid decision they're making an extremely naive decision. Yes, yes. However,
2: at the end, you know, despite... Everything that kind of made me say, oh, 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 God, come on, you know, I still liked it.
3: Yeah. Well <laughs> oh, yeah. i, you know? I, I got to say, as far as recent movies that I've I've gone and seen, this is probably my favorite other than The Avengers. Wow, okay. Um, and I did not like this one as much as The Avengers. Oh, no, no, no. I love uh, The Avengers much more. But um, having said that, Ridley Scott is my favorite director and there's something about the visual process that his films tend to to go through that's very beautiful and very watchable sure. and even when the people were making the dumbest decisions on earth i couldn't stop looking at the film as something the, the, really beautiful to the watch. film
2: is the the visuals are astonishing pretty much from one end of the movie to the other uh, regardless of how you feel about what the visuals are representing. I wasn't particularly bothered by the Chariot of the Gods concept at the base of it, which is if you're oh, not, no, if not, f- if not you're, at all. If right. you're not familiar with that, the Chariot of the Gods was a book that came out in the seventies that imagined that all human life might have been uh seated by these alien super beings and it presented what was supposed to what was I suppose potential circumstantial evidence that the gods that you know we all worshipped way back when, or, and I guess still do, were were in fact these aliens who visited and, and created us.
3: And Prometheus runs with that concept. Yeah, and and, and in the, in one of the earlier script ideas, um, it went even more heavy handed than that, and they were it was to be revealed that the the engineers, which are the the aliens who seeded Earth, actually made the decision to come back and destroy humanity because they had at one point sent an envoy back to Earth who was then crucified. Right, right. So, so, so
2: there's some religious overtones to this particular science fiction, although those
3: particulars have been excised from the movie, I guess, at it, this point. Th- that much of it. it the, the main character played by no- Nomi Rapace, who is an incredible actress. Um, right. Was uh, was very religious and, and uh, struggles with the concept of, well, where is God if aliens created us? She ends up with kind of the hackneyed answer, well, if God didn't create us, then maybe they created the engineers, and through that we right. are eventually children of God. Right. Um, I'm not sure if it's Nomi Rapace or Nomi Rapaci. It's
2: Rapace. Rapace. I looked it up just Nomi Rapace, (laughs) so that I can pronounce it correctly. Excellent. Uh, Nomi Rapace's character also has that sort of hackneyed "I want a baby but can't have one." that is off that is too often assigned to female characters in movies and although the the, I, the movie grants her wish in a particularly horrible way right uh, and
3: and and whereas a lot of movies would make that more of a driving part of her character i think that in this case it's easy to get that mixed up with what they were trying to do which is give her character the uh, opportunity to experience the the most horrific Kind of pregnancy terror, almost, most definitely, right, and and of course, since you're doing that, it does come off as the standard, you know, woman wants a baby but can't have it, so it motivates her right. life to discover and create. And I could not fault any of the acting. No, in, not at all, in especially Michael Fassbender. If oh, that, his his
2: his portrayal of one of the alien universe androids is easily
3: the best yet oh god he was incredible and uh it's cemented him in my mind as my favorite actor at the moment you know he's been in so much good stuff recently he Um, he
2: sure was a great magneto
3: yeah and uh you know one thing that i gotta say about him one of the things that makes him such a good actor is that he is kind of invisible when i went back and looked at his career on imdb There were all these roles, and I just didn't realize that he was the guy playing it. He really is able to become these characters. And bringing that to the android role, this kind of innocent, wide-eyed naivete that just drives the movie. I think he is sort of the driving force in the movie. I think he definitely is. Now... Interestingly, there's been, there's
2: been a number of different criticisms of that character and confusions about that character. And I think there is fault to be laid at the feet of the writers of this thing, not just for that, but for other things that happen in the movie. But the way my take on his character is that he had some sort of order to accelerate the process of contact and Discovery of the alien creatures, uh, with disregard to any actual consequence to the lives of the crew members on board. That, to me, that's what seems to explain right. just about all of his actions. The, the movie, however, is not very clear on resolving that, and it's, that isn't the only thing the movie isn't very clear on resolving.
3: Right. But and I, I think, other than, Nomi Rapassa's character, he tends to be like the moral compass, even though he does some very morally reprehensible things. Sure. In the the scene where he does accelerate contact without giving too much away, he without outright asking the character who he interacts with in that scene, he does ask permission. Right. You know right. I, I in, think in the exact line is, is how far would you go to discover the secrets, whatever. And right. the guy says, I would do absolutely anything.
2: Okay. <laughs> and so he
3: takes that as a, a you know, complicity in, in right, the right. next stage of uh, contact.
2: I, I will say, you know, you've you've heard me griping a little bit about the writing here. For me personally, the, the first moment in the film where I found myself kind of stepping back and going, okay, you guys didn't really think this plot through uh happens when the scientists are all inside the pyramid and decide to take off their helmets. Because right. why not? Yeah,
3: the, 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 I guess the logic, if you can call it that, is that there's an artificial atmosphere being generated in this, this uh,
2: right. pyramid
3: that is is perfectly breathable to humans. Sure. And
2: and who knows
3: what microbes or contaminants right. could be. Which in is that something that I that just <laughs> drives me insane about most science fiction. Yeah, it's I understand it's a convention made so that like f- actors' faces are more readily available to the camera and whatnot, but sure. but for for and, the and realism I think, I think well sorry to interrupt. I okay. I
2: think also there's a there's almost a tradition in horror movies to deliberately up the suspense by moments like that, right? And it made me it made me wish that Ridley Scott had watched The Cabin in the Woods before they went forward <laughs> with this film, right? <laughs> because so many of the tropes taken apart in the cabin yeah. in Cabin in the Woods could have been applied to this movie.
3: Uh, but no, sorry, go, go no, on. No, that's okay. There to me initially, it's somewhat forgivable because they do establish. Nomi Rapace's, uh romantic interest as being very impetuous. Yes. And he's also an anthropologist and geologist. Uh, some other science. Yeah, th- thing. A, not, not a hard biological scientist. Right. And so I can understand why he might have skipped that part of the lecture and just popped off his helmet because, oh, this is exciting. But then shortly thereafter... The biologist who's with them, who doesn't protest enough, I don't think, then just pops his helmet off too, knowing full well the consequences of alien right. life and the possibility of microbial infection and whatnot. And, it, and we,
2: we're not—I guess—we're not even going to talk about you know the the scene in depth, the scene where another scientist. Deliberately pokes the uh, what's been referred to as the penis vagina worm. <laughs> oh.
3: <laughs> oh yeah, the, the same guy. Oh my gosh, he's a, supposed to be a, a a xenobiologist, someone who has studied life on Earth enough to understand what life might arise as on other planets. And this great big white worm pops his head up while they're they're discovering the inner chambers, and uh, instead of being extremely cautious and observing and and whatnot, he gets enthralled by its beauty, which i got to say is pretty questionable. It does, in fact, look like a weirdly albino penis with a cobra hood. Yes. And just reaches out to touch it. And, of course... That's what I do. <laughs> yeah, right. But, um, you know, I, I did see a comment somewhere, or, or a four-panel comic or something, where it... Discuss this as like well, it looks like a cobra, it acts like a cobra. Why don't I pet it like I would a cobra <laughs> and of course it it's not friendly at all right yeah imagine
2: imagine that an a, a creature in an alien movie not being friendly, yeah, no kidding yeah you know, and and it is astonishing I also you know I don't want to turn this into a long bright fest on my part, I have to say that I was. I was disappointed with how Charlize Theron's character was ultimately dealt with. Because she right. struck me as a very interesting character that more could have been done with. And
3: Absolutely. And she falls into the mustache-twirling villain trope there near the end. Right. At first, she seems to have deeper motivation, and then near the end it's just straight, this is what I was ordered to do, so I'm going to do it, and damn... The consequences. Right, right.
2: But what ultimately happens to her is one of the silliest things in the movie. Oh, my God.
3: <laughs> you know. I think Penny Arcade did a comic that really lampooned they, that. They did.
2: There's also a wonderful YouTube video about science training for Prometheus. That yes, was, yeah. That lampoons a lot of the scientist's behavior in this. Um, when in doubt, check it out. I guess my thought as a writer is, wouldn't this movie have been much more interesting is if you had the scientists behaving like you hope at least scientists would behave
3: right taking all the precautions
2: and then you had michael fassbender's character sabotaging things absolutely It, it it dilutes the impact a bit in that you have him being this sort of reckless saboteur when he really has to do nothing because the scientists themselves are so incautious and incompetent that they kick all right. sorts
3: of things in motion all on their own. You know, I never, <laughs> never really thought about this until this moment, but, but I, I will give away one thing that we've kind of hinted at before. Michael Fassbender's character David infects Nomi Rapace's love interest with this black goo, and it begins a terrible the black goo. Right, it's a terrible uh, transformation that ultimately ends up with him destroying himself or allowing himself to be destroyed to save the crew from what he's becoming. If David hadn't done that, they would have had the same result because another character becomes infected with the goo by himself yes. and returns to the ship. Yes, yes. So it, what you're saying really is that David could have fulfilled his mission by just sitting in a chair the whole night. Exactly,
2: exactly. oh. <laughs> uh. But, you know, on the flip side, I mean, I confess I am a guy who watched Apollo 18, which is equally ludicrous in its science, and was very entertained by it on kind of just the flat-out B-movie horror level, which Prometheus delivers with some of the best special effects that you'll ever see. (laughs) Yeah, it is a beautiful
3: movie. Um... So I, I kind of want to turn the conversation a little bit to its existence as a horror film. Sure. That's sort of what we're we're supposed to be talking about, and and we've gone over a lot of the flaws in the film and some of the good parts. But really, as horror, it is my favorite kind of horror, which is body horror. And if you're not familiar with that term, it's it's a horror that deals with changes in a body, or foreign objects, yes. or or creatures inside the body. Something very personal. And to me, very, very scary. To give you an idea, the idea of parasitic worms, if I just think about it long enough, it'll keep me up at night. Right. And so the whole concept of... Having
2: the, something like that inside you.
3: Something living, living inside driving, you. eating. Right. It just drives me crazy. And after talking about it now, I'm probably going to be sick to my stomach for about an hour. <laughs> but, um, But in this case, it does it extremely well. Very, very grotesque, but clinical, and I, I it's hard for me to describe. One of the scariest parts of the movie for me was the day after the love interest is infected by David. He wakes up, and he feels terrible, and he goes and he looks at his eyes in the mirror, because they're really bloodshot, and you see in the pupil of his eye a worm or a tentacle or something flicker around for a second and then retreat. Yes. And... Oh, my God! I don't That's know what I own. would do. I would want to pull my own eye out have Have I seen that and it's incredibly scary to me. The monsters in the film I found very interesting it was yes. visually appealing and, and a lot of their growth and their the interactions that they have with with each other to sort of create this melange of creatures was fascinating to me. Very very neat concept, if you take into account that the idea is that these are biological weapons. Right. And they they were very well set up as something you could drop on a planet, trigger, and then go away. And they would do their job, and you could come back later and clean up. And it's an interesting explanation for what the aliens that follow actually are. Right. This is sort of a a proto- Alien. It sets us up as like um, almost a, a biological weapons design facility, and what the the engineers fall prey to ultimately is the goo, right? And not the actual creatures that result from it, just like an accidental exposure, much like what happens to the crew of the Prometheus. Uh, Prometheus is the name of the ship, by the way. Just in case you want the the ship that
2: actually gets
3: gets them to this planet where all these bad things happen. Right, and another really really gut wrenching and chilling part of the film is they discover the head of one of these engineers that's been in this uh, chamber that has perfectly preserved it. Oh yes, that that was
2: one of the more interesting moments. Oh my gosh,
3: and they bring it back to the ship and they. They notice that it's got some kind of thickening in the skin around certain areas. It doesn't look natural. So they insert an electrical probe and begin upping the amperage until they get some muscle response from this head. And the level of terror, fear, and pain on the face of the head as it begins to awake it really made me think that they didn't think through that that sort of thing might actually wake up the mind of this, oh yeah. This well, I, I gotta a nice call it that person, and it you know it ends up being pretty disastrous.
2: If you recall, this is a, it's you could look at it as a much more serious take on the head animating scene from Reanimator. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> um, and, and one thing that I liked about it, that, as much of the science as they got wrong, they did get a few things right, and that is the head could not make noise. If you don't have lungs or even a throat to pass air through, you can't speak or make noise. This so is true. That's it's...
2: unlike the head in reanimator. Right. <laughs> so
3: the mouth is moving, and you can almost take it as either cries of pain or or an attempt to speak, but it it's silent. Whatever message it had is lost.
2: Definitely one of the better moments. I just wanted to say, in summary, that my take on Prometheus is that I do recommend
3: seeing it, but keep your expectations low. I I slightly disagree with you. I think as far visually and conceptually, your uh, expectations can remain somewhat high. If you expect the characters to react to the situation in a realistic fashion, then you're going to have to wait until the last quarter of the movie. (laughs) Um, Because... The shortcomings that that the movie ends up having the most to me is that in order for the movie to progress, the characters have to be stupid. And I, I wish I wish
2: more movies would be made that did not feature that. You right. Know, the message of
3: Cabin in the Woods has not yet spread far enough. Right. <laughs> and also, I mean, if you look at the the precursor Alien. You know the the characters make extremely realistic decisions. They aren't scientists. They're yeah, they're, they're not the
2: brightest in the bunch either. But no, but, but, but it's a little more acceptable.
3: They're basically space truckers. Right. They they've got this huge refinery ship and they're just flying it back to Earth. And then they end up having to go down to the plant and pick up the stuff, whatever. The guy is accidentally infected, which I appreciate right. because it's an accident. He didn't make a stupid decision. He fell down. And then the, the stupid decision is made by the space truckers who just want to help their friend. Whereas in Prometheus, it's like the scientists go out of their way to expose themselves in every possible way to foreign contaminants and biological creatures. Convenient for the story
2: not so good in the suspension of disbelief department.
3: Right. Especially since it's set up as these are biological weapons. They should act like biological weapons. It shouldn't take a stupid person to activate... And be destroyed by it. Right.
2: right. Folks, thank you very much for listening. Obviously, there's more we could say, but I don't want Tony to have a cow when he sees the size of this file. So. Stay scared. Stay scared.
1: Right. Stay scared. Thanks, Mike. And thanks, Shalen. So, for more from Mike, click on his link below. And by the way... Mythic Delirium Books, that's Mike's imprint, has two of the Mike-edited Clockwork Phoenix books, now out in E-editions. Go. Go to Amazon. Have a buy. And now, fiction. Ah, another summer treat. It's about vacation time. It's about New Jersey, at the right edge of which, is the Atlantic Ocean. And in summer, most of the population of the eastern seaboard. Many of those people from New York, from Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, and megalopolis points between know only the shore places, Atlantic City, Ocean Grove, Asbury Park, et al. But there is a state to the left of the ocean beaches, a densely populated state, the most populous state in the United States, in fact and, in fact, has a great emptiness at its heart. Sometime, I would love to get F. Paul Wilson's wonderful tale, The Barons, for you here in the Nook. He knows the Pine Barons of New Jersey, its people. uh, Some dare call them Pineys, and he captures them perfectly in the story. My goal here is, well, it's slightly different. Here is... So Many Tiny Mouths. When the wind freshened, the mouths climbed the sky, played among the trees. Earl Suey wrote, "'They eat top-down, well as bottom-up, don't matter none.' Earl sat in his shack, writing down, like always, like once, like long ago, when he was barely a coot, back when the government-claimed men were going to the moon, the whole damn world snackered by that bullshit. Cap Haney, too! Earl saved that newspaper.' Still, he had the damn thing somewhere. That was years ago, and Earl was writing even then. Now Earl watched the dark creep. The sand drifted, rolling in dog-high waves around his shack. "'Dan, by sand and dark,' he wrote. "'Forever dark, coming!' Didn't matter, he figured. Figured the damn mouths couldn't see. "'Even though they got one of my eyes,' he swigged a little beam, and added, "'Ha, ha!' "'His eye-hole itched and hurt at the same time. "'So many mouths, even blind, all they had to do was open and bite, "'bite so quick, so often, something would be there by and by, something to eat. "'Blind mouths against a half-blind man makes an even fight!' "'he wrote on the Toms River Sentinel. "'Even,' he said to no one, laughing, "'even nothing, when the end is sure,' "'he wrote that down. "'Earl always wrote things down. "'Well, sometimes he didn't. "'But he had years of sentinels saved, "'saved to write on, "'marking over the damn gray print lies "'with black crayon, his wide lines of truth. "'Always something gotta kill you,' "'he wrote over a story about the president and water someplace. "'Now there's a truth in that damn paper,' he said, and swigged again. "'He listened. "'The air clacked, clicked, hissed. "'A dry rain of sand sifted over the shack's tin roof when the wind died. "'When it blew, it scoured roof, walls, everything. "'Gobble, hobble, hobble, bobble," he said, when the sand brushed the window.' Sweet nothings, he said, sand making love whispers to the glass. Soon his windows were gone. Turned, he wrote. All my window glass turned to sand. He wrapped the plastic tarp around him tighter, hugged the bottle of beam closer to him. He wrote, the noises in the air where they eat are... He listened to catch the sound, and then... By and by he wrote, The sound like something, uh, not squirrel, scratching louder in under the eaves. That's its eating noises. Then putting on paper the sounds in the air, Nick, 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 he wrote, A million nicks is night to night. There were no squirrels now. No squirrels in the barrens, he wrote.
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Barrens, and then no squirrel everywhere. That was an afterthought. couldn't do without squirrel, anyways. The air was cool and his breath dripped down inside the plastic he'd wrapped around himself. "'That cold day in July everyone talks of,' he wrote. "'Ha, <laughs> ha!' The mouths had come with the Fourth of July. He wrote, "'Everyone missed the end of the world.' And then he added, "'Cap Haney, Buster Leak, too. Too much fun, I guess, <laughs> howling at the moon.' "'The moon.' There had been a picture. Made him laugh. He'd cut it from the sentinel years ago. He showed it around over by Chatsworth. The damn picture had the astronauts standing on the moon in their suits. And there it was, the damn moon in the sky of the damn picture. Now, how can they be on the moon when the moon's in the sky there, he said. You answer me that. "'Folks, real folks.' "'They just shook their heads. "'Good catch, Earl,' they said. "'Capania, he looked. "'Damn, Earl,' he said. "'That's them practisin' in their space-suits there. "'They're out in the desert. "'You see, it says, them astronauts practisin' "'for when they are on the moon, for crying out loud. "'Sure, that's the moon in the picture. "'That's where they're headin', Christ, Earl. "'It says right there.' "'Earl,' he shook his head, "'and saved the damn picture. "'If they're on the moon,' "'How can the moon be in their sky?' he wrote it. "'Still, made him (laughs) laugh. Cap (laughs) Haney. "'The end of the world started with the folks from Filthy Delphia. "'The family stopped on the day, Fourth of July itself, "'canoe strapped to their roof and lost. "'They bought a couple five gallons of gas from his dipping barrel, "'and he'd pointed their way to Papoose Creek.' Earl's old hunter-dog had ignored them. When their car had come crunching up the sand trail off the county road, the old bastard raised his head and sang a squeaky bass roof. And when the car stopped, he growled, and when he saw their faces, uh, he just fell asleep farting. The young dog was off on the causeway in the wood. He didn't bother homing to to see what the hell was up with these folk. "'Help us uh, with a little gas there, can you?' the driver called. "'Service stations closed over, in. the man turned to the little woman. Uh, "'Chatsworth, was it?' "'The woman bent to the map, crinkled in her lap. "'Buster Leek, too goddamn rich to work holidays,' Earl said. "'He squinted at the car folk. "'Yeah, us pineys, we gotta take our fun too, you know. "'A ton of plastic camp shit. "'Forget map or sense, these folks were good and lost.' Daddy's sausage hands were sweat-tight on the wheel, pretty fingernails, shiny. Uh, we're looking for, uh, is it uh, the, the Wading River? <laughs> yeah, the Wading. And uh, um, it's the uh, the Papoose Creek. Uh, Daddy said it like he didn't want to say it. You, you heard of uh, Papoose Creek? The woman leaned over to look at Earl. A white strip of sun grease ran like war paint down her nose. She yelled slow like talking to a damn Mexican. We hear about Jersey's Pine Barrens in Philadelphia. There is so much history here. She clicked her tongue. We want, you know, want the kids to see be- before, you know, we want them to see the pines before, yeah, before Capaney cuts them down, rolls out them little bitty houses here to sell. "'Earl said. "'The lady smiled. "'The kids sulked in the back seat, looking nowhere. "'Earl started. "'He gave them shit for a little. "'Spun-tails charged a pretty penny for the gas. "'Penny? (laughs) "'Hell, Earl charged what they call an arm and leg "'for a short five gallons of dewy low test "'because Buster closed the Baron's shell for independence. (laughs) "'Son of a bitch. "'He was good for something.' After dipping and shitting him, Earl pointed them to Papoose Creek. that Papoose bottom water, (laughs) that is good for what ails you, (laughs) he winked at the man. It makes you strong, if you know what I mean. And then he looked at the woman. She snapped a picture of Earl with her little yellow camera box from the store. They paid, and they were gone. Like that. Earl was going to tell them, watch out for that Jersey devil now. He carries off folk in the night, his hundred teeth like needles clacking. He'd written down that story years before. He could have warned them to watch their damn campfire, for Christ's sake. Could have said, it might look swampy wet out there, but it ain't. "'Dry for Christ knows how long. "'I don't want my shack and me burned through your careless ways. "'I built this myself. "'Oh, Christ, now, I built it back when Cap Haney was a little shit "'back in the damn Depression. "'I've been here that long. "'Cap getting richer, me getting older. "'He would have told them about Cap, his damn bogs, "'the nigger day-labors he's jobbed in in the seasons. "'But the damn people, they just... "'The damn people drove off.' The car kicked a rooster tail of sand as it slewed onto the trail and into the pines. The old dog slept. Earl laughed. (laughs) Then he kept watch through the back window. Evening on, Earl leaned against the glass, looking, looking toward the creek, watching for sparks, the telltale glow of run-wild flame in the sky above the forest. Night sneaked from under the trees, across the sand, between him and the woods. Tree shadow touched his wall, and dark, crawled over him, and onto the shack, over Haney's bogs. Then night was everywhere. Night stayed day-hot. The sky was pale and watery. Of course, that could have been his damn eyes, still, all he saw of earth and heaven, that Last night of the world was the forest and a few stars wiggling in heat. That and the thing. If there had been no folk in the woods, Earl would have sat his porch, taken the breeze off Haney's bogs. He would have rocked, listening to the crick-crack and the buzz of bugs and the wing-moan of swallows as they fed. He could have sat breathing pinewood scent through his own and the dog's stinks, those familiar reeks mixed with the nearby whiff of frog, toad, decaying water-life bubbling up from the bogs and the faraway mossy sphagnum breath of cedar swamp steeping in the deep wood. He could have had a good night, July the 4th, gone to bed and died stupid like the world was going to. He didn't. He was watching out that damn bunch in the woods, and because he was, he saw the thing. He saw it come, almost burned his eyes out white, like sunlight screaming its set black shadows climbing the insides of his shack. He heard the coming thing fry the air, felt it whomp the ground. For seconds the shack shivered on its stone posts. The wind sucked out of him, then deep thunder boxed his ears. The damn air punched his chest a second later and rolled across him, wiggled the flab of his face. The old hunter-dog went went standing, suddenly wild, looking around, singing. I best write that down. <laughs> what do you say? Earl said. And he wrote. Stars shooting back, he wrote. Fourth July... The stars shoot back. A big come. A big come. He figured the Philly folk were gone. Found later he was wrong about that. Figured the thing had whomped down by Ong's hat cross, where the Ford sisters had their shack. That was that for them, he figured. It was too bad, too. He liked those Ford girls. <laughs> Earl ran outside to look for fire sign. Nothing but the glowing Wake. "'across the sky. "'He listened for the fire trucks to come, "'shouting out of Chatsworth. "'Nothing. (laughs) "'Too much independence from me,' he figured. "'All your money, Cap Haney. (laughs) "'You don't even care about... "'You don't even care about... "'It took him a half minute. "'You don't even care about them poor people,' he figured out loud. "'In a few minutes, the trail of the fallen star "'was a blue smear.' down the sky. After a good half-hour, there were still no trucks, no men. "'Well, up to me,' he said. He waddled the hundred feet from his shack to the woods. Not to it, normally. But tonight, tonight it was an uphill mile. Hell, a hard two-mile!' Each step sank him to his ankles. Each step he shoved backward in giving earth. It was like wading through a running tide. The black forest wall rose ahead, rose, and whispered. He had never been afraid. Not ever. Not of critter, woods, nor night. Little shit and grown man Earl Suey was pine-born and fearless. Now... The forest was a stranger. The wood whispered unfriendly in a tongue he'd never heard. What was different? Something changed. But what the hell, he didn't know. He'd write down when he did. Twenty steps into the forest, and the trees folded shut behind. The world, shack, bogs, and Chatsworth, all was gone. Now it was him and the sand sweeping his feet. Overhead, the pine boughs were black fingers against the blue ghost light of the star's trail. Even that soft light was spreading into the big night. Out of the forest came a ripple. Something breathed across him, and the world rumbled, rising and sinking like a john boat riding a tidal swell. Earl's toes tried to grip the sand through his boots. Knight's breath was cold. It was bad. A a smell he didn't like wrapped him. From down the trail, a scream squeaked his ears. Wasn't man nor woman. No animal he'd heard. Not even being eaten, living, made that noise. Something, though, something, clamped in pain, was down ahead, dying. He tried to grab hold. Remember the noise, the stink, for writing down later. Too much new was happening, though. The the path to Papoose Creek, a way he'd walked since the Great Depression, had become something else. Night's heat was gone. Christ, he, he should have brought his damn lamp. No sooner had it washed him, though, than the stink, the sound, was gone. When a branch he should have known bit his ankle, when reach creepers damn near snared his legs, when a heaved root nearly tumbled him onto the bogwash, he stopped dead. Chill sweat covered him. He heard it then, and this time he could not forget. He hadn't run since he was a boy. Men didn't run. He ran. It stayed. It followed him. Back to his shack, his hair stood wet with damp and chills. It climbed his bones. He scribbled down. Black sky, he added. Black forever. Everywhere. Everywhere. Something different. That was something he felt that was true, but he didn't know why. And then he did. The difference is. It is. Different, he wrote that down. Before, everything was all the same, all the same forever. Trees, paths, places, all directions the same. Now, not. Now, all, all is different. From his back window, he looked at the black forest, at the white sand path that led there. Everywhere was difference. Everywhere he listened. And he listened to the night. Even silence had a stranger's voice, and from the pines came the noises where the silence ate. He woke when something thumped the shack's ass end. The glass he leaned on bumped his head. Outside, day was bright. It wasn't hard sun, but fuzzy bright. "'Fog had come while he slept, and the shack was wrapped in grey. "'Another something, whomp, the wall. "'He laid his hand against cool glass. "'The fog on the pane shoved back. "'His hand shook. "'I can't see shit,' he told the old dog. "'The hand he pressed to the glass was veined, red and blue, "'thick-skinned, crossed with scars and stories.' That was the same. At least that. The nails were yellowed, thick, chipped, dirty. After so much night writing, his right thumb and first three fingers were black with crayon wax. The pinky edge of his hand was gray with news ink. Like always, those hands were truthful. And now they shook. They shook, damn them. Another something screamed as it whomped his wall. "'He'd had it. On to the porch, Earl, the old dog. "'The shack might as well be hung a mile in the air. "'He couldn't see earth, not even the foot of his own damn steps. "'He and the dog stood there, and they sniffed. "'To Earl's thinking, morning smelled a little like fire, a little, not a lot. "'What the hell?' he thought. "'I'm near ninety. Near ninety and afraid. Christ!' And something else whomped the back of the shack. A big flapping followed. The old dog leaned, trembled against Earl's leg. Christ! Earl gave the animal a shove with his knee. Ought to take you and shoot you, you old bastard. Dog, afraid ain't useful. The old dog waddled toward the gray morning. He stretched his neck, took one step from the porch into the mist, and then another suddenly its body jerked he sounded one long howling note that curdled into a growl and flopped backward to where earl stood dog song echoed from the day this was a good old dog, lazy on its porch, but, but one to fly, "'flapping ears and jowls, singing into the trees and off the trail "'in long-legged strides, ahead of roaring trucks, "'charging junkers, bouncing after game, running the night, "'unafraid of tires, guns, or the tearing death of tooth or claw, "'this old dog. "'Now this old bastard tucked its head and whimpered into the shack.' Another thump on the back wall, another scream, more flapping from the mist, screams echoing inside, the old dog simpered. Oh, what the hell?' Earl said. The world smelled. Stank a little like outhouse, something of old oil and gas, the, the way them old fishboats by Egg Harbor smelled. And something else hung on the bottom of those stinks.
4: "'What
1: the hell?' Earl said. And "'Then it came.' The day smelled, damn it, damn it, if it didn't. The day smelled like sex. Once he caught hold of that, Earl reeled it in. Damn if it wasn't the biggest part of the morning. The thick odor like that place women had. He, he remembered that damn much about it all. <laughs> you old shit, he said to the hound. "'What good's a dog afraid of a little pussy?' (laughs) "'The dog shuffled deeper into the shack, away from the open door. "'The flapping from the back sounded like a woman shaking a wet sheet for drying. Two, three wet sheets, a dozen wet sheets. "'Another thud and more, out of the noise from both sides of the place. "'A stream of birds came running, reaching for the air, big birds and small.' With them came fox, coon, squirrel, possum, all together swarming around the shack, flowing past, over his roof, his porch, and into the fog, all away from the woods. Jesus Christ, Earl said. Later, he tried to write down the sounds they made, birds so scared they forgot air had buildings and trees in it. Squirrels so frightened they'd run with fox or cat, critters as would eat them standing still or on the run. All the cries so terrible as to frighten a chase hound. The broken, flapping birds were the worst. Later, he wrote, No birds, but birds will be the last. A minute after, he calculated fish might be last to go, but he didn't bother writing it down. Earl "'stepped off the damn porch. two paces and the shack was a gray smear "'in the blank white day. "'A man could lose himself Stepped from his own damn porch,' he said. "'Having said it, he realized it was true. "'Earl rooted inside, among piles of papers, "'stacks of dirty dishes, pots and forks, pans and cans, "'through stinking clothes he'd meant to wash, the radio in pieces all over, under the yards and yards of plastic tarp. He tossed aside tools, wire, pistons and rods, rooted among boxes, bottles, engine parts. He finally found the rope, the good yellow stuff, the kind the electric men used to stay the power poles over by the highway, two hundred feet coiled neat. He tied one end to the porch post, the other around his gut. Then he stepped down. "'and on to the sand again. "'Still like wading water,' he thought. "'Wading running tide,' he said. "'The shack disappeared behind him. "'Alone in the mist he played out the rope, "'trudging through the giving sand to the forest. "'Behind, small critters still whomped his home from time to time. "'They cried pain, they shouted terror. "'Then they fled.' What the hell he was doing, he didn't know, but he felt the need to look. Felt he ought to be on the trail, into the woods. Whatever strangeness was here, it had come from the sky. Now it was in his patch of wood, this foggy morn. He had maybe forty, maybe fifty feet of nylon rope still on the coil, when screams, a thousand of them, echoed from the mists. Some near, some distant, the screams held a thousand terrors, all pain, all on the move toward him. A breeze stirred the sex stink a little bit. The air cleared enough to let him see the opening in the forest wall, a place darker in the gray. Through the fog it seemed a mile, seemed, but it was close. Earl squinted against the day, against his age, against disbelief. Ahead, the forest floor, moved toward him. Out of the screaming woods and rustling brush, the sand rippled like waves on a still pond. In slow, slow motion, the wave front crested, breaking toward him, almost frozen, almost but not The wave's breath came on the breeze, rotted meat and dirty sex. The sand breathed on him. It was the sand that screamed the thousand, the million tiny voices, the sand and the things the sand was eating. (laughs) The sand said a billion times above the hissing flow of coming tide. From the trees... Earl's dog, the other, the young one, that had been hunting yesterday, last night, when the thing came down. Now the young, the stupid animal came crawling, dragging its ass end. Earl watched the damn animal haul itself from the pines. It reached where the wave crested, then collapsed, rolled, head over ass, then stopped, stuck, sinking in the rippling sand, stopped. It devoted itself to screams. From the shack, the old dog returned the call. Whole thing took a minute, and at the end, the dog was gone. For a few seconds, It struggled, seemed to sink, sink slow like a boat oozing under the water. When the hound rolled over, it was dead and no longer screaming, but it continued to writhe, "'made lively by the action of the chewing sand, "'argued over by so many tiny mouths. "'The dog went side up first, then belly up, ribs like teeth. "'Earl saw no legs, no more, no more hind end and belly. "'The thing was body cavity and bone, spilling, "'unwinding guts, dissolving flesh and blood, "'seeping into the sand, and the sand drank. "'The sand ate.' The dog melted like a block of ice in summer. It was summer and soon gone. A minute. Earl wrote, Sand come from out of space. He wrote, but knew that wasn't right. Sand may be made alive by... He held the crayon above the page of the Toms River Sentinel. It shook. He couldn't figure what to say. What made the sand alive? He wrote, That star fucked us, sure. That seemed as good an answer as any. Fucked the earth and made it live. He was writing on the picture of the astronauts back from the moon, sitting in their little isolation trailer, talking with the president through the window, astronauts smiling. And when the morning stopped screaming, the mists cleared some. The rippling wave folded closer to Earl. He backed away, kept a good twenty or thirty feet of still earth between the living, rolling sand and his own damn self. The day had cleared enough to let him see a little. Even so, he followed the yellow rope, wound it around his arm, back to the cabin, onto his porch. He hugged his porch post, the post he'd raised in the Great Depression. The sand wave stopped a couple, three yards from his steps. It murmured, waiting, waiting. The world stewed and hissed a pot set to simmer. He heard more than saw through the thinning fog, but the forest was moving, creaking, cracking, trees, a a few, fell. Then more, they fell, rolled, tore the brush, the brush crackling in its own dissolving ways. He pictured the pines falling, upended, rolling, sinking, eaten like his dog. The wind blew and the fog tore to shreds around him. With the blowing wind, Earl got a little of himself eaten. A grain of sand on the wind, some grit to the eye, that... And nothing more, nothing unusual in the barrens. He blinked, wiped the corner of his eye, like always. And then from deep inside him, the familiar pain grew new teeth. White heat screamed. It grabbed the side of his head. Fire flashed a bright needle inside his eye. One grain. But it ate fast. It ate hungry. ate fuller than he could have thought. That thinking came, was written down later. "'Of course, later. "'In the moment, the pain dropped him to his knees. "'He fell, hands first, on his porch. "'By the time he'd wiped the grain away, "'the eye jelly was gobbled, "'the lid poked through, ate out, "'and that part of his seeing was gone, "'gone for good. "'Later, the sand wave swept forward, "'slowly, running like molasses in January. "'It wrapped the shack. "'It rolled on.' Later, Later, he wrapped his head in the torn parts of his last clean shirt, took to wearing the goggles he'd kept when he junked that Indian motorcycle back in 1942. He wrapped and taped himself inside the plastic tarp. That's when he wrote, "'Hell, there's something gotta kill you. Might as well be this.' And that was as true as anything he'd ever written down. Later, the car came out of the silence, banged and screamed, a strange and alien thing on metal rims, the tires eaten, gone, the engine banged near death, over-racing, coughing, threatening a stall, but kicking sand every which way, spraying the tiny teeth into the air. Sand eats rubber, he yelled. <laughs> "'Reckon you know that, though,' he said to himself. "'The car-folks stayed put, yelling, but stayed put. "'Earl wore his new plastic suit and brick shoes. "'Out the door, bricks wrapped to his feet with yellow plastic rope. "'He whisked the wind-borne sand mouths off the porch with a flail of frayed tether. "'The car's windows were near gone, pitted and holed like cheese.' Now the glass, it turns to sand, Earl yelled. Shreds of nylon tent covered the holes where the windows had gone over. I guess you found that one out, too, Earl said. In the car, the people screamed. Earl couldn't see who was left. (laughs) Where to go? What to do? What, for God's sakes, to do? How do we get out of here? (laughs) They all screamed at once. "'Give us gas!' someone inside yelled. "'Pour some gas and we'll take you too!' someone yelled. Earl thought it was the man, but who knew? The yelling was so shrill. "'Sure!' Earl yelled. "'Well, I gotta charge you, though!' <laughs> he laughed at that. "'Help us! For God's sake! Help us!' It was another voice. It was the woman's, maybe. Maybe the girl's. He couldn't see with his one good eye and the fading light and the "'pitted plastic lens of the cycle goggles. "'Where you gone? he called across the sand. "'Where's out of here when the whole world's going over? <laughs> "'Please!' "'It was a squeaky boy's voice, then again louder, "'the squeak rising through a scream of, "'Please!' "'Well, now <laughs> the gas is there, son!' Earl pointed to the drum. It sat where it had the day before and for fifty years on its stone base. Go, go help yourselves. It's a day after holiday special, he called across the clear. He felt a needle sting as a couple of pissed off mouths nibbled at his nose. He swatted where they bit. He scraped them away, leaving a little trail of blood across his glove. Fill her up, he yelled couldn't help laughing at the thought. He laughed again. The family danced in the dying car, yelling to him, to themselves, to the world. Earl wondered what was going on, being decided behind those tent flaps. Who'd sacrifice? That's it, he said aloud to himself. That's it! I bet you're figuring, now how far can we get on this tank? Or you're thinking... How long can I last? How much gas can I dip and pour till they till they eat me to the knees, huh? huh? Earl didn't figure the sausage fingered man to give himself up for eating. Send the boy Earl yelled. <laughs> and then what? he said, but he said it quiet and to himself. He was wondering how damn desperate the folks were. He stood by to watch. Earlier, he calculated why he was uneaten. He'd built on piles of rock. Back in the Great Depression, he built his shack just right, kept sill beams off the ground, so he sat on old granite now, watching the sand eat the living earth away. Oh, it was eating the cabin now. Now, he he couldn't miss that. He could hear it at the wood. The sand was resting, but when the wind stirred, it flew where each grain nested on something living or something once alive, a a log, a blade of grass, or a critter. The sand ate, ate, and didn't fill. He wrote down, Nick, 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 a billion times already, billions more to go. Earl watched through the day. And when the sun sat on the western sawtooth ridge of trees, the sand began to stir again. Ah, you're waking up for night, he wrote. The wave began to ripple, to murmur. Not a bird, not a bee, not a critter moved on earth that Earl could see. Just ground itself, gnawing, crawling on its mouths. Earl dozed. "'downing whiskey to kill the pain in his eye, his head. "'He slept, not well, but hard, and he woke alone. "'Dog gone,' he wrote. (laughs) "'Then he laughed. "'Brick shoes, now that was smart, he reckoned. "'Keeping wind-drift sand off his floor out of the way became impossible. "'There was too damn much, too much wind and the sand, too small. "'The plastic tarp he wrapped himself in wore as he walked.' Let some seep in, and when it came, it ate, ate on his feet. Finally, he got the notion. Put something between him and the ground, something sand didn't eat. Bricks, he figured, bricks would work. Knocked a couple off the base of his kerosene heater, and and that was it. Fine as frog fur. (laughs) And from then, to the end of the world, Earl walked, clumping, thud, thud. From his porch in sundown light, Earl kept watch. The damn car never drove off, never tried. No one got out, no one tried to fill the tank. The thing sat, revving every now and then, every so often. The inside screamed. Sometimes the screams were at him, and sometimes not. Every so often the car shook and shimmied as though someone inside was dancing, fighting, humping. (laughs) Sundown. The car went still. The engine chugged through the last of the light. With the crawl of shadows, it coughed once or twice, raced again, and then shuddered, still. Earl listened. There was a voice inside, one. "'It was crying.' "'Earl took a last sip of Jim Beam. "'Go on home now,' he said. "'Go on home.' "'And he tossed the bottle to the sand. "'Not light enough now to see, but he heard. "'Heard the whisper of the sand, "'the urgent chatter of the glass "'as it shivered into a billion parts, "'the parts making friends with the sand.' The voice from the car kept crying. In an hour, it screamed, loud. The screams went on for a minute or two, maybe three. Earl's clock had stopped. But then the car went quiet. Later, he listened to the trees, their noises as they fell. Soon after he was gone, Earl figured, pretty soon after, he figured... The trees, they'd be gone, too. Fuck him, he figured. Damn trees tried to put his eye out, tried to trip him all his years of wandering the forest. They'd tried to crush him when he felled them. Had been the mothers of splinters and burning faggots and broken chairs, and, and trees had tried to get him all his life, and they had failed. They might outlive him now, but not by much. Grass. Cranberry, sphagnum moss, fern, other living shit, that'd all go down the mouths. Fuck the trees and the horse they rode in on, he wrote it down. Almost the last thing. For a second he thought about being buried. Then he laughed. World swallows you anyway. Might as well like this, he wrote. That was the last. Earl looked up. The wind picked up, blew through the holes where once the windows were. The grain scoured the wood. Nick, 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 nick. He shuffled the plastic tarp around him tighter. He kept them out as long as he could. He looked to the noise above, the roof crackling like small arms fire. Pieces fell, dissolving as they fell. Through the holes, the stars shone bright. In the chomping night, he pictured the world. The whole damn world spread below him, like he was one of them astronauts. A real one, a real, for Christ's sake, astronaut, a real traveler in the outer space. He and the Sands were real astronauts. In his mind's eye, Earl saw the world. He looked down on it like the papers said the astronauts in space had done. In his mind's eye, Earl watched earth shrivel, die, all the living, all that was growing green and climbing, all the critters, the people, he watched it shiver and go down, rolling in the sand like that dumb young dog of his. He watched it all go down the tiny mouths. How many grains of sand was there? All round the world, how many tiny mouths! <laughs> from where Earl sat, wrapped in plastic, tethered to his shack, peering from his goggles, breathing slow, he saw the world reshape, flatten, in his mind's eye, looking down. Damnation! He hoped that would be the way. Everyone gone when he was gone. Folks from filthy Delphia. Buster Leek. Cap Haney, the pickers he hired in the harvest, all of them gone after, oh, he hoped, and when it came, the pain was pure, lousy. Soon it ended in just a minute, maybe two. I wrote So Many Tiny Mouths because I was asked not to write an end-of-the-world story about sand eating the earth and all its people, but because I was asked to contribute to a book called Fang and Claw, I believe it was. This was a long time ago. I was asked because a well-known author who had promised something by a deadline date failed to turn in his tale, and I happened to be standing next to one of the three editors in the book at a convention and said editor turned to me and asked and I said yes and I think within four days sent this story. The witch was accepted and then the witch was returned because that earlier better-known author had finally brought forth and delivered. Ah, uh, well… That happens. I shelved the story. I do that. I also didn't particularly care for it, in the shape that it was in, when I gave it to the Fang and Claw people. Over the years, I tinkered with it. Finally, I read it aloud at an event, and because of that, was asked to give it to an editor who was doing a prosine online and was paying pro-rates, and there it was. In electrons. But paying electrons. And illustrated by Alan M. Clark, one of my favorite horror and dark fantasy illustrators. When I wrote So Many Tiny Mouths, I think, and I say I think because I have to reconstruct this from old story notes, I think I was trying to craft a Lovecraftian sort of tale, one of infinite horror, a horror that arrives from the great beyond, one that is beyond our ability to understand and which is entirely inimical to mankind. I also wanted the reader to view the story as possibly taking place entirely in the head of an old man who is dying alone. well... Listen, I won't go into the details of the writing or of my life history as a kid from PA who Jersey at every summer of his fetchings and how I never knew that the hour-and-a-half trip along the highway into Ocean City was through dark, ominous, impenetrable Jersey pine woods. Just suffice it to say that after my kidhood, years later, I did a documentary film on the pines— and had as my guide an irrepressible coot by the name of... (laughs) No, I'll not say. Well, I'm sure he's gone by now, but who knows? Anyway, my character, he's fiction. Any resemblance to anyone living or dead? Purely coincidental. Yes? Yes. And to let you know... So Many Tiny Mouths is part of the collection of my short fiction recently published by Silver Thought Press. Ah, now you understand. Now you know why I aired it here. I'm selling my book, the title of which is Drink for the Thirst to Come. It's available on Amazon, on Kindle, and wherever really discriminating books are sold, which increasingly is fewer places each and every month. So Many Tiny Mouths is one of 14 stories in this generous collection, and I hope you'll consider it for your chilling summer, autumn, anytime pleasures. So, that is your evening here in the Nook. By the way, feel free to find Tales to Terrify on Facebook and like us. It's the one with the happy red icon and the green Tales to Terrify letters when you're looking for us. You can say what you think about the show there, too. And that, finally, is that. Next week, and let me create a catchphrase here, there will be something completely different. It's the nature of horror. So, have a nice walk home. We're pretty close to the edge of our little inland sea here in the nook. Lake Michigan laps the shores just two blocks away, that way. Night is lovely on the water, but frequently there are less than desirable fellow appreciators of the night, the waves, and, and yes, the sand. I'm sure our sand is just fine. Quiet, you know, not at all hungry. At least, not recently. So, have a good week, a good night, shake the grit out of your shoes when you get home, snuggle down, and listen for the snicks. In the night and have some really pleasant
4: dreams. Hmm. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Washington There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction.
1: You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions
4: at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.